John chapter 5. I'm going to go back and I'm going to start in verse 16. We have 15 there? Okay. Verse 15. John 5, 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he wills. The father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So kids, you're dismissed to Children's Church. Is my mic okay? And we're in John 5. As you can tell this morning, we are back in chapter 5. We are going through this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, what is called expository preaching. Um, It's not just simply going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's not technically expository preaching. Uh, It's when you draw out the meaning from the text in its original context and bring application to that is really what is expository preaching. So we're going to get into the text today because context is going to be very, very, very important. The immediate context of John 5 is a healing. Pastor intern Chris Cajano just did a great job of bringing this text to life. Jesus comes from Galilee and he's now in Jerusalem. It was during the time when the Jews were celebrating one of the feasts. It probably was an annual feast when all the Jewish men were, uh, and families were mandated to come into Jerusalem. It was a very crowded city. Jesus comes through what is called the Sheep Gate, which in history was a place of celebration, but now it is a place of misery, desperation, hopelessness, and even superstition. There's a place there where the invalids would come, and the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed waited by a pool until they thought and they believed that an angel would come down and stir the water of this pool. And the first one in would be the one who would get healed. The belief, or should I say a superstition, was widely held during that day. As Chris pointed out as well last week, there was no crowded, you know, it was a crowded place, no bathrooms, no, uh, no place to get people moved along and wheelchairs and those, na- you know, that nature. And as he said, the place probably stinks, or I like the King James, it stinketh. <laughs> At this pool... There's a man there, verse verse 5 of chapter 5, who's been an invalid for 38 years. Chris also pointed out how beautiful that is, and that picture that he painted for us is a picture of the gospel. We are helpless ones. We are the helpless ones. We are dead in our sins. We are the rebellious ones who are unable to respond 
as this paraplytic man is, is at this pool and right in the midst of this brokenness and helplessness, Jesus comes in. I remember talking about that last week. What a beautiful picture. Oh, the magnitude and beauty and glory and grace, sovereign grace of Jesus. And he walks into this area and he, and he chooses this man not because he earned it, but simply by grace and says to him, do you want to be healed? And the man is still caught up in his superstition. His, I got no one to put me in the pool. Not sure who Jesus is. And Jesus turns to him in verse 8 of chapter 5 and says, Get up, take up your bed. Right? We're not talking, as Chris mentioned, not a big mattress and box spring. It's a mat that you roll out. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. Took up his bed, and he walked. And then if you look at chapter uh, 5, verse 8, is where the controversy comes in, the problem that gives us the context of the rest of this chapter. Now that was the Sabbath day. So this man who's been 38 years, probably body has just been wasting away, can't move, the flesh is probably, you know, weak, the muscles weak. Jesus, by a command, says, walk. The man gets up. And then he becomes a snitch. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who did it. I didn't know who it is, but I know now. And I, I, I just want to tell you, Jesus, that's the guy. Verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting him. Persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. So you see the picture? It's right on cue, right? Right on cue. The Bible-thumping religious establishment gets offended because someone broke their rule and their regulation. Rather than get excited about God's grace and mercy on this man's life, someone in their own community was healed of an infirmity for four decades long. I don't like the music here. The seats are uncomfortable. Was that a harmonica in that guy's mouth a minute ago? You know, how dare God save drug addicts, crackheads, you know, all kinds of people are hurt and broken and give them a place of worship that's a little different than ours, right? How dare he? Who does he think he is? Right? That's, 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 you know, the highly religious kind of biblically informed folks sometimes get that way. It's legalism. Make no mistake about it. Jesus did break their stupid rule. Their stupid addition to the Sabbath law. But he did not break God's commandment. The Bible is clear. Jesus fulfilled the law. He has challenged their silly interpretation of the law on occasions. He challenged their methods on how to carry out the law. But the law still stood, and Jesus followed the law of God. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Separate it from the rest of the days. On the sixth day you shall labor. You do your work. And all that you do, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath rest to the Lord your God. Jesus obeyed the Father impeccably. And healing the man on the Sabbath or telling him to carry his mat was in no way an act of disobedience to the Father. To the religious establishment, well, carrying anything from one place to another, one home to another, or carrying your mat was against their law, but not against God's law. It wasn't as if Jesus said, all right, six days, I've, I'm going to close my medical practice. But you know what? I think I'll open it up on the Sabbath. I'll bring everybody in, get $50 a head. I'll make a couple of hundred dollars. That's not what Jesus did, right? Well, he didn't tell them, listen, pick up your mat and get everyone's mat and charge them 50 cents a piece and we all make money. You know, he didn't do that. He told the man simply, pick up his mat and go. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about the Sabbath within the four accounts of the gospel. 
right? While he was on earth, there was all the times, I'm not going to get into it, you can read it for yourself, that Jesus had things to say about the Sabbath. But this account, this Sabbath-breaking context, he used to teach us a vitally important aspect of his identity, who he is. We're on chapter five. So far as we've been studying through this book, we know that Jesus is the word, the eternal, ever-existing word who became flesh. He's the word of God. We find that in chapter one. We find in chapter one that he is the lamb of God. Thinking back of sacrifice, he's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, chapter one as well. Chapter two, we find out that Jesus is the temple of God. In chapter three, Jesus is the son of man. In chapter 4, Jesus reveals himself to the Samaritan woman as the Christ, the Messiah. Here in our text is the most, I think the most, or at least one of the most, comprehensive teaching by his own admission that he is the Son of God. And it's right here during the Sabbath controversy that we get this incredibly rich, Christological understanding who Jesus is, Claims, right from the lips of Jesus. We had John 1.1, 1, 1, that's incredible. You know, the Apostle Creed begins with these words. I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only son, his only son. Our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But if you ask people of different backgrounds, what does it mean that he is the son of God? You may get very different understandings, perspectives. If you ask a Muslim, Muslims think that Christianity is about Jesus being the son of God, but that he had sexual intimacy copulated with Mary to produce Jesus, and that just makes them abhorrent, angry, and sickened, and it should. That's not what we believe. If you ask a Hindu who Jesus is as the son of God, he would say he's an avatar, that, that there are many avatars, that God and human beings are of the same spectrum and territory of existence. Jesus is just a little better than the rest of us. If you ask a Mormon, they believe that Jesus is the son of God, but they mean that he's the half-brother of Lucifer who became one of many gods and through, again, offspring, sexual intimacy, the father and Mary, Jesus was created. If you ask a Jehovah Witness, you say, do you believe in the Son of God? They'll say, yes, I do. He is, to them, is a created being. He was actually, before he came to earth, was the archangel Michael. Throughout centuries, people are asking this question, who is the Son of God? What does that mean? In fact, the 20th century, if, you, if you've done any reading or, you know, maybe broaden your horizon, you saw books that said, you know, searching for the historical Jesus. Jesus tells us who he is. This is an eyewitness account from the lips of Jesus. Let's see what Jesus has to say about Jesus. Let's see what Jesus has to say about being the son of God. Okay? Now, when you talk about son of God, you you saw many of the different religions and cults think differently, but the Bible talks about the son of God even in scripture in different ideas, thoughts, perspectives. Job chapter 1, when we talk about the sons of God, he's talking about the angels who belong to God, Job 1. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you are a peacemaker, blessed are you with peacemakers, for you shall be called sons of God. In other words, you're doing what your father does, you know, especially in those days, not so much today, but a baker's son becomes a baker. Carpenter's son becomes a carpenter. 
like father, like son. God is the, uh, uh, the, the ultimate peacemaker. And then when we are peacemakers, we are acting, or at least trying to act, like the father, sons of God. Hosea 1, excuse me, Hosea 11 Israel is called the son of God. He says, I, Israel, my child, out of Egypt, I called my son. In the original context, not in New Testament context, Old Testament context, that's the son. The Israel's the son. Even in 2 Samuel, if you read about the kings of Israel, they're called the sons of God. But in our text, Jesus himself is making it crystal clear what it means for him to be the son of God. What does he say about that? You see, in verse 16, the Jews were angry and they were persecuting him because he broke their man-made laws. But notice, it was Jesus' response to that that went from persecuting to now they want to kill him. Jesus answered them this, this breaking of the Sabbath law. He could have said, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, 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 okay. If you think I'm breaking your laws, let, let me really break it down to you what the law is really about. Let me, let, me, let me interpret it for you. You could have done that. But he doesn't. They, they say, you are a lawbreaker. And then what does Jesus say? My father, look at that verse at 17, is working until now. And I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So rather than saying, look, I, I, let, me, let me break down the law to you guys are reading it wrong, you're interpreting it wrong, let me tell you what it really is. He uses the opportunity of breaking the Sabbath according to that rules to reveal himself to them of who he really is. Now, in that day, if somebody was blaspheming and calling themselves God as if they're claiming that Jesus is, Jesus had a great opportunity to say, whoa, whoa, time out, fellas, whoa, whoa, time out. I'm not saying that. I am not saying I'm equal with God. I am not saying that I'm one with God. I am not calling myself God. You misunderstood. But that's not what Jesus says. What you need to understand is the rabbis in that day had, had discussions. Does God keep his own law? God gives us the law, his moral standard, and does God keep his own law? Good question. Most of the answers, yes, the problem came. Most of the people would say yes, which he does. But the problem came is, does he keep the Sabbath law? Does God, does God rest on the Sabbath? And what they concluded was, he couldn't possibly rest like we are the rest, because if he rested and did nothing, the whole world would unravel every Sabbath. But God sustains the world, holds the world, and is sovereign over the world every day of the week. Amen? Otherwise, it would be just unraveling. So most rabbis believe that the Sabbath restriction from working did not apply to God. The Bible says in Isaiah, the everlasting Lord, the God, the creator, does not become weary or tired, right? It was set for the man, right? It was set for us to know that we need to rest. We need time for resting. So his breaking of the law, you know, he obviously didn't break the law, okay? There was something within the Sabbath law that God was allowed to do, because if he completely rested as man was supposed to do, it would unravel. So there was, there was things that God would say, no, he can't possibly just rest. There are things that God continues to do during the Sabbath. Here comes Jesus. <laughs> My father is working. Continuous uh, uh, verb. My father is working, even on the Sabbath. You guys know that. He can't just stop. 
And I'm working always, that's a verb, I'm working too. So what he does, I'm doing, like father, like son. He too works on the Sabbath, I too work on the Sabbath. There's something within the Sabbath that is the prerogative of God, and it's for me as well. That's why they got mad. Like, you're calling yourself God. And you need to see this. Jesus as the son, the son that he is claiming to be, has the same exemptions from the Sabbath than God himself does. The same prerogatives, the same privileges, the same rights, exclusive rights as God the Father. Jesus simply saying, listen, my father's working and so am I. This is what really set the Jewish authorities off the deep end. Not just a Sabbath breaker, he's a blasphemy. He's blasphemy, he's saying, you're equal with God. And they understood that. Now, the Jews understood that we're children of God, but Jesus didn't say that. My father, they weren't used to that. My father works and I work. See the difference? My father, this is a unique sonship. Now they want to really kill him. Now you, you, can, you could believe whatever you wish to believe. I can't make you believe. I can only tell you this. You can read what everyone else has to say of who Jesus is as the son of God, or you can read what Jesus says he is as the son of God. And that's what's going on right here. Now remember, he's talking to a monotheistic group, one God, the Shema, Deuteronomy, you know, worship one God. And he's telling these people who worship one God that he is God. And they say, well, you're making yourself equal to God. You're saying my father. Now, just to be sure, Jesus is not saying, and we're gonna, I'm going to show you this. Jesus is not saying, what you're saying that us equality, co-equal, is 100% correct. Well, it is 100% correct, but that's all there is. Because to be equal with God could mean there's a competition going on. There's equality with God, God, God the Father, God the Son, which we deny, we do not say there are two gods, but co-equality could be like there's a little bit of, uh, you know, we're kind of equal. You got, you know, this God and that God, and we're kind of the same. Two gods or three gods if you want to include the Holy Spirit. So Jesus wants to explain that, yes, we're co-equal. What you're saying is correct. But then he just says, let me take you deeper. Let, Let me really explain to you what this really means by you saying to me, that you make myself out to be co-equal with the Father, let me tell you, it's not just co-equality, there's oneness. There is unity between the Father and the Son, unique like no other relationship in the world, and that's where we get into the rest of the verses 19 through following. So there are two things I want us to see. That's it, just two things. As we see Jesus explaining to them, yeah, I'm equal with the Father. Yes, I just said that. And yes, you think it's blasphemy. And it would be, except I'm God. And I'll tell you what sonship really is. I'll tell you what equality with God really is. Look with me at first his activity. His activity. Notice first, verse 19. Jesus takes no qualms with what they're saying. He's not saying, listen, let me explain what I'm saying. No, that's not what happens. Jesus is not enough to just say we're equal. Jesus says that God the Father has the same prerogatives and privileges and exclusive rights to heal on the Sabbath. And then he pushes the envelope. He becomes more forceful. He becomes more emphatic in his claim of being one with the Father by introducing the statement. Now, you see it in your Bible, verse 19. 
maybe you don't know what it means, but when it says verily, verily, or surely, surely, okay, in the original, that's a solemn, emphatic, unchangeable declaration. And Jesus says to them in 19, wants to drive it home. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, emphatic, unarguable declaration. I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Notice first Jesus showing in this relationship between father and son there is a subordinate role. He is not subordinate in an ontological sense, in an essence, in being sense, but in a functional sense. You need to understand that. It's not ontological existence or being, but a functional sense. John 1, Jesus, the Word, was with God, eternally existed, and was God, John 1. Jesus will say in John 8, before Abraham was, I am, same verb, always existed, no beginning and no end. But he's subordinate to the Father. I love to talk to Jehovah Witnesses when they come to my house. Or when the Mormons come. If I'm driving home and I see them leaving, I go chase them. (laughs) Dude, I wasn't home, come on back, right? I love it too when they come, sometimes they come husband and wife or some of the ladies are out ringing doorbells. They think he's a created being and I say to her, I love doing this. And if you're in here and you're Jehovah Witness, you're gonna hear it when you come to my house. Are you married? Oh yes, I'm married. Oh, good, good. Is your, is your husband like, you know, is he, is he any better than you? Is he more worthy than you? Is he more valuable than you? Oh, oh, oh no. We're, so you guys are equal. Well, as, as, but the Bible says that you ought to submit to your husband as Christ, as you ought to submit to your husband, your husband ought to love you as Christ loved the church. Oh, absolutely. That's what it says. Do you follow that? Oh, yes, I do. I love it because they get, get them on the defensive, you know. I'm like, so let me see if I get this right then. You are equal of worth and value, but you submit to your husband. Yeah. And all of a sudden, light bulb goes on. I'm like, well, that's your relationship with your husband. That's what, that's what the Bible teaches. Equal in essence, but subordinate in roles. Why is that so hard to understand? And, 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 and then they're just kind of, all right, they're thinking through all the stuff that they were taught what to say, but they really don't know what to say. You know, they, they, they're like, oh, I, I, that doesn't really... Uh, it does, yeah, I, I guess, well, but well, that's not what, oh, no, that, that's what the scripture teaches us. So the whole idea that there's these co-equal competition gods is shattered. He says, I submit to my father. Uh, he, I'm in a subordinate role. So Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal with, and subordinate to the father. This is going to, we're going to see that clearly here as well, but this is where it begins. So perfect sonship involves perfect identity of will and action with the Father. For all the Son does, he says, is coextensive or equal or parallel with the Father. It's impossible for a lion to act like a lamb, and it's impossible for Jesus to not act like his Father. The Son must do as the Father does. His words and his deeds are those of the Father. Like Father, like Son, we say, don't we? The Son does what he sees the Father doing. Look what it says, 19. The Son does nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now look at, if you've got, you got a pen, mark this, 19. For whatever, for whatever the Father does that the Son does likewise. It's one thing to say, you know what, I just love to love people. I, I, I love hospitality. My Father is a, a, a God of hospitality. My God is a God of love, and I want to be like Him. And I want to reflect the character of my Father. That's, that's fine. 
But if I said whatever the Father does, I do, you'd want a straitjacket. Okay? There's a big difference between the two. God creates the world, sustains the world by his omnipotent power and sovereign over the world. So do I. No, I don't. But that's what Jesus is saying. Whatever I see the Father do, I do. Really? He gives life, I give life. He judges mankind, I judge mankind. Jesus says, when I heal this man, when I heal this man on the Sabbath, on that Sabbath day, when I showed compassion to him and healed him of his paralysis, showing him the depth of grace and love of God, calling him to leave his sin and to trust me, I'm doing what the Father does. John told us specifically that Jesus, the Word, is involved with creation. Genesis tells us, John tells us. And Jesus is saying, listen, when the Father created and he rested in the sense where he just sat back and and looked at the glory of his manifestation power and his creative beauty, I was with him. And when sin entered the garden and, and death came and the whole earth began to unravel and sin and disease and brokenness entered the world and death entered the world, God is working to restore shalom, a perfect world, a, a new heaven, a new earth with shalom, with perfect peace, no sin, no brokenness. And you know what? My father's doing that ever since Genesis 3. So am I. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. I too am working. And someday we'll together, there'll be perfect peace. Jesus was claiming in a subordinate role, but an equal role, oneness with God. So to accuse me of Sabbath, Jesus says, to accuse me of breaking the Sabbath is to accuse God of Sabbath breaking. Because he is my father and I work exactly as he does. What's the motive? Look at verse 20. Since or four, verse 24, because uh, since the father loves continually the son. The father loves the son. And listen, and shows him all that he himself is doing. The father loves the son, and therefore the love removes any, any motivation to act independently of the father. The scriptures teach us that there's a mutual love and glory between father, son, and spirit. One God, three persons. If God is love, and that's his nature, and love didn't exist until he created, something's wrong. But we can say God is love, and his nature is love, because Father, Son, and Spirit, mutual love from eternity past. But there is not mutual submission within the Godhead, within the Trinity. Okay? There's a mutual love. The love of the Father for the Son is demonstrated, okay? The love of the Father for his Son The Son is demonstrated in His unceasing and continuing revelation and revealing of of His will. And His Son does it. That's an expression of His love. The love of the Father that has for the Son, He shows Him. The love of the Son to the Father, He what? He obeys it in perfect obedience. It'll culminate on the cross. John 14, He says, I do as the Father commanded me, Jesus said, so that... I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. How do you know Jesus loves the Father? He obeys him. How do you know the Father loves the Son? He shows him all things. Okay? That's what he's saying. We've been calling this series The Invisible Made Visible. God eternal, transcendent, above everything, is made known in the person of Jesus Christ. He came in the flesh to know so we can know who God is. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. The invisible made visible. 
How do you know that Jesus is really the invisible made visible? Because he does all that the Father shows and tells him to do. Therefore, you can know who God is through the person of Jesus Christ. He obeys the Father completely. Again, on the cross is the ultimate expression of his obedience. But let me say one thing important here. The Father loves for the Son. This reciprocal love for each other is the first instance, the apex, the pinnacle, the preeminent reason for the cross. It's not God's love for you. It's not God's love for me. It's not God's love for the world, and all that is very true. John 3, 16. But the apex and the pinnacle of the glory of God displayed at the cross is the utter outflow of this reciprocal love between Father and Son within the Godhead. That's why we used to sing this song back in the day when I was leading the band. We don't do it anymore. We used to sing this song, and you know it. Above all kings, above all nature, and all created things. Right? Above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. You know that song? Crucified, right? Laid behind the stone, you live to die. Rejected and alone like a rose, trampled to the ground. You took the fall and you thought of me above all. Not true. Sorry. Erase that from your memory. Not true. His glory, his beauty, his incalculable worth as God in himself is the apex and pinnacle reality of the cross to display his beauty, his glory to the world. Secondary, of course, his love for you and me. John MacArthur writes this. It might shake you up to hear this, but the heart of God's redeeming work is not God's love for you nor his love for me. Not God's love for the world or for sinners. At the heart of redemption is the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. You say, didn't Jesus die because he loved us? Well, in a secondary sense, not primary. Jesus died because he loved the Father. Didn't his Father send Jesus to the cross because he loved us? Yes, in a secondary sense, not primary. How am I to understand that, he says? You're to understand it this way, that the whole purpose of redemption, the whole purpose of creation... The whole purpose of the world, the universe, human history is that God can collect a bride, his people, to give to his son, a bride that is an expression of his love for the son. The father will give to the son a redeemed humanity collected one day in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever to praise and serve and glorify the son and always be an everlasting expression of the father's love. That's beautiful. End quote. Verse 20, greater works, greater works I'll do that you may marvel. Not just the healing of this healing of of a paralytic man, nor his claims about the Sabbath. The son in obedience to the father's will will show him, will perform greater things, Jesus will. What are some of them? Take us to our second point. He will assume the exclusive rights, prerogatives, and privileges of God himself by not only his activity, but secondly, his authority. And the first thing we see, oh, the activity. Sorry, hope you have your Bibles. I don't have my iPad up here. I don't know where it is. If you find a small mini iPad, it's mine. 
So you have his activity. I do as the Father shows me. He loves me in love. I follow and I obey, and I'm, 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 I'm equal, but there's more than just be equality. It's this, it's this right I have as the Son to do as the Father has sent me to do. Okay? Now, under the authority, there are three things that we're going to look at. Now, I want you to open your Bibles, and you will see... I've got to try to explain this, and I will. There are four, four clauses. Number four, F-O-R, four. So there are four, F-O-U-R, four, F-O-R, I'm sorry, I wish there was three, but there aren't right now we're dealing with, there's four, clauses that start with four, F-O-R. Verse 19b, it says, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. There's no competition going on. We're one, one four. The second one, in verse 20, for, he explains the Father loves the Son, and shows them all things. The other two is in verse 21 and 22. It speaks of the Son's delegated authority to give life and raise the dead, verse 21, 4. And then verse 22, the word for is not in there. It's in the original language. I don't know why the ESV kept it out. I think the NIV has moreover. Um, for, verse 22, the Father delegates authority to the Son to execute judgment. Okay, so you see the four, he gives life, raised the dead. Four, he executes judgment. And what's the reason? That the son may be worshipped, verse 23. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to look quickly at he grants life. He has all judgment and then worship. So that's where we're going. John, that's my picture. John has, John writes in a, in a, in a, a many times in a circular motion. So he hits the theme, he comes back, he comes back. That's the way he writes. So in order to really go through this and try to understand it, we're going to add some other verses to it in, in John 5, and we're going to pull out three main themes. That's really what I'm doing, okay? So the first main theme is the giver of life, grants life. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 24. Truly, truly, absolutely true, you can bank on it. Amen and amen. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Make no mistake, the Old Testament is clear. The writers and the biblical scholars understood the Old Testament makes it clear. The prerogative to give life belongs to God. Deuteronomy 32, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. Many of you know the story in, um, when the king of Syria sent a letter to the king of Israel. And the king of Syria sent not only a letter but sent Naaman, who was the captain of his army, to Israel and asked him to bring healing to Naaman. You remember what the Israel king did when he got that letter from the, Israel, from the Syrian king? He read the letter asking if he can heal Naaman, his commander, and he tore his clothes. And he said, am I God to kill? And am I God to make alive? The king understood what the other king was asking for, something that only God can do. Only God, and he rips his clothes. Only God gives life. Even Elijah in 2 Kings, when he went and he raised that boy from life, he put his, you know, he laid on the boy, and he called out to God, bring healing. You don't see none of that with Jesus. You don't see none of that with Jesus. His authority goes way beyond Elijah. Jesus said, for the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. 
No calling on a higher power. No asking for help. No rolling up his sleeve. Jesus' claim is an inherent power and authority in himself to give life. Verse 24. Those who hear his words, believe in him, has eternal life. We talked about this before. Present possession. Not eternal life when you die. It's eternal life now. Just as the Father gives life to dead bodies and raises them to new life, the Son takes people who are dead in their sin and raises them to spiritual life. We saw that in John 3. Jesus is claiming that just like God who breathed life into the first human, that Jesus himself, Jesus Christ himself, is able to raise the physically dead and give them power and give them life Whoever drinks, Jesus told the woman, you remember in John 3, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, the Samaritan woman, he said, shall never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life, John 4, 14. They knew, they understood what Jesus was saying, that God alone is the source of life. And Jesus is saying, my equality, my oneness with the Father is that he gives life, I give life. The son chooses in perfect agreement with the father and, 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 and does as the father does. But make no mistake about it. The son chooses life. He has that power and prerogative to give life. We see that in redemption, do we not? We see that the father chose the, those who would be saved before the foundation of the world and the son is given to the son and all those who are given to the son by the father, none will perish. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say, Not only is this a reality, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead, listen, Jesus is saying an hour is coming, it's here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Something radically going on here. All commentators agree. Jesus is pointing to the reality of eternal life now, present possession, but also a guarantee of the future hope family the resurrection at the end of life at the end of time is already been manifested and made known by jesus christ to those he has given eternal life to now in the bible there's a tension purposefully on the already and the not yet jesus pronounces you already have eternal life and by him saying that he's affirming a realized what they call inaugurated eschatology. In other words, what that means, the coming of Jesus guarantees in the end of time, in the end with the resurrected bodies, because it's coming now, in the end, it's a guarantee. It's already realized in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is going to talk about here, and he's going to talk about it in the next few verses. That's why I have this here. You're like, really, a Polaroid? They make them now. I, I, I thought they were like, you know, back when I was a kid, you know? They make them. The already and not yet is like a Polaroid camera. I thought maybe some of you folks, young folks may not know what a Polaroid is, so I got a picture. You're out in the woods. It's a beautiful scene. You take your camera out. It's a Polaroid. And you snap a picture of the Adirondacks. Beautiful. The thing pops out. It's black. Back in the day, I don't know if you have to do that, you do this. You know what's coming. <laughs> then you put your fingers on it, you blow on it, you ruin it. That's what I would do. But usually you just do this because I'm impatient. I want it now. Already and not yet. I have eternal life. 
There's a new heaven and a new earth, a new resurrected body I will have because of Jesus Christ has given me eternal life today because I believed on him, trusted him, love him, worship him, walk with him. He's placed in me the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of life to come. I'm just doing this. It'll come. Already? Not yet. That's eschatology. That's the, that's the already and the not yet. It's coming. The picture's coming. See what he's saying? And look what it says. How? By the voice of God. Now, again, this is the words of Jesus. He says, verse 25. Look at verse 25. Look what he says. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the what? The dead will hear the voice of God. No, the voice of the Son of God. The mere words of Jesus. There is no power that the Father has that the Son does not have. Verse 26. As the Father has life in himself, he has granted life for the Son to have in himself. You see, the Son's authority rests in his prerogative, his, his privilege, his exclusive rights that was granted to him by the Father. What son can say that? The king of Israel? Israel themselves? A created being? Name one. Only Jesus can offer life now and in the future because those who trust him and love him and believe in the Son of God do not come into judgment. They've passed, it says, from death to life. So he gives life, and look, given all judgment. Look at verse 22, again, four. The, ju- the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Family, that's a radical claim. Again, even in the Old Testament, when giving life and authority to judge belongs to God alone. First Samuel 2. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. First Chronicles. Then all the trees of the forest sing for the joy of the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Here stands Jesus, the Son of God. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to me. Every Jew, every Muslim, every, every monotheistic believer who believes in the judgment of the end time, which there will be, believes that God alone is the only one who could judge Do you see what Jesus is saying? As the son of God? He alone is qualified to do it. Here we see an example, a clear example, of the distinction, again, the function, not ontological, but a function of the father and the son. The father did not die on the cross. The son did. The son did not send the father. The father did. This does not mean that Jesus will execute judgment independently of the father. You know, that's not what he's saying. It's not like all of a sudden the, the, the father's saying, okay, you've been by my side for eternity and, and I got you on a leash, got to do as I tell you to do. And then he releases them and says, okay, go do what you want. Okay, I'm going to go judge. Is that what he's saying? Look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. Verse 30. My judgment is just because why? I seek my, not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? John MacArthur writes, because their wills are in perfect harmony, all judgment can be given to Christ in the assurance that his judgment will be, in fact, the very same as the Father's judgment, end quote. Verse 24, look what he says. I truly, truly, again, I say to you, whoever hears my word, believes in him who sent me, has already eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but pass from death to life. And he has given him authority, Jesus, to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. You see that in verse 27? The already and the not yet. 
I, 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 the Son has been given all authority. He gives life now, and he will judge in the end. Those who he gives life will pass from life to death. They'll go from kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There's this, uh, a, a change that is going on. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel. I'm getting judgment. It's been given to me. Do not marvel, verse 28, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, how many? All. In the Greek, it means all. All means all, and that's all all means. Will hear his voice, the Son of Man, and come out. And those who, look, who have gone good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Everyone's coming out. John 11, we're going to see later on that Jesus comes to the tomb of who? Lazarus. He opens the tomb. He says, open it. I know he stinketh. He's been there for three days. Lazarus, come out. Out he comes. Now, if he said, just said, come out, everybody would have came. That's why he called him by name. He has that power. You talking to me? No, I'm just looking for Lazarus. Will you guys go back? I don't know. All who are in the tombs, life or death, believers, unbelievers. Now, I don't have time to get into the different, we're not going to get into different resurrections, but two main points in this, in this, in this here about the uh, given all judgment. Number one, Jesus, by his authority, by his voice, by his uh, power, raises the dead. Okay? Think about that, everyone. Millions upon millions upon millions who ever live will be raised from the dead by Jesus, the Son. Okay? Millions of people, tongues, every tongue, nation, tribe will be raised. He's going to raise King Herod, who tried to have him murdered at two years old, to judgment. He's going to raise Adolf Hitler, Judas the traitor, John and all the other apostles, Kurt Cobain and John Lennon, everyone, will be raised from the dead by the Son of God. It doesn't matter what happened, it doesn't matter if you were in a fire, blew up in a plane, little pieces everywhere, you will, I will be raised from the dead, and stand judgment. That's what Jesus is saying, and the Son of Man. The question that separates eternal damnation and eternal life is not what you do, it's but who you believe. Notice in the text it says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. If you take that too far and you don't keep it in context, you think, I'm going to be good, I'm going to work my way to heaven. Jesus is going to make it very clear in the next chapter. Yeah, chapter 6. He says this, the apostles are like, listen, um, what do we need to do? What, what do we need to do to have eternal life? Jesus makes it very clear. Next chapter, verse 29 of chapter 6. This is the work of God that you have to do, that you believe in him, that you believe in Jesus, whom the Father sent. What do I got to do? I have to believe. Resurrection, life, and belief in the Son. He calls my name. I hear him, and I believe on him. I've trusted him to life. I reject him. I want nothing to do with his claims to eternal damnation. That's what Jesus is saying. John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Not only does the voice of God raise the dead, but look at verse 27. I love this. He has given him authority to execute judgment because why? He's the Son of Man. We've talked about that a lot. Daniel 7, the son of man, is, is, the, is, the, is the figure that comes from the ancient of days, from the father himself, from the throne, and he's coming in the Shekinah glory, and he's gonna judge the world. That's the son of man, Daniel 7. A lot more to do with his deity than his humanity. But I learned something this week. 
I learned that in that verse 27, the Son of Man is the only place in the New Testament that does not have the article in front of it. Say, so what? Well, that means a lot in the original. When it says the article, Son of Man, it's pointing to Daniel 7. Here it's just Son of Man. And it has commentators, not baffled, but pointing it out that there is no article here. He's not talking about that figure who's coming to judge the world in that sense. He's talking about being human. That Jesus in his humanity, in his incarnation, gives him the very unique position as the son to judge. Why? He lived the perfect life. He followed every command of God. He's the only one that never sinned. And therefore, he doesn't deserve judgment. We do. And being a man, the God-man, fully God, fully man, he has the unique right, privilege, prerogative to judge mankind. That's what he's saying. Hebrews 4 is clear. We have a high priest, Jesus. He passed from the heavens. He came down from heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold on to our confession, okay? He's not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this God in human form who lived without sin is uniquely qualified to judge mankind. So we see he has authority in life-giving. Two, he has authority in giving all judgment. And finally, number three, look at verse 22. I love this verse. Look at verse 22. The father judges no one, but has given judgment to the son. Verse 23, why? What's the purpose? So, verse 23, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever, underline this in your Bible, when they come to the door and they knock, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. You see, the reason the father has entrusted judgment to the son is known now. It is so that they may honor the son just as they honor the father. Family, Amazing claim, stunning claim, remarkable claim. You ought to honor, which means to revere, to regard, to value Jesus as God himself. Not only that, but anyone who does not receive honor and value Jesus as God himself doesn't know God. That's what he says. The monotheistic one God Jewish people revealed in the Old Testament the same God who was jealous who said I'll share my glory with no one Jesus says honor me love me worship me revere me give me glory as you do the father if you don't you don't know him that's what he's saying unbelievable honor me it's not even it's not even that he's demanding to be worshiped do you see that he's demanding to be worshiped as the God of the Bible right? You honor me just like my father. I deserve equal glory. And Holy Scripture is clear. John in Revelation, Daniel, you find the Old Testament, these men fell down and worshiped angels, and the angel, a created being, said, dude, get up. Do not worship me. Do not worship created things. Do not worship. Stand up. I am created just like you. Don't do it. Peter, same thing. They want to worship him. Don't do it. Paul, same thing. Don't do it. Not here. Jesus doesn't say, oh, 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 you can't worship me like the Father. Jesus says, the only way to the Father is through me. It's to worship me, to honor me, to revere me, to value me of my incalculable worth like the Father is the only way to get to the Father. That's what he's saying. 
He just doesn't accept worship. He demands it. And the same kind of worship. You see, there's a functional subordination, a functional subordination, but he's also equal and one and unity with the Father. Let me give you two last thoughts. Two seconds. So what? Very highly theological. That's just the way it is today. You cannot worship without knowing who God is. The greater you understand the revelation of God, the greater your worship will be. False worship is a false knowledge, a false revelation, a false idea of who God is. This is so important for you and for me to see God in who he really is in all he declares himself to be in the Son. It is so important when it comes to worship Number one. Number two, if Jesus is who he says he is, you could trust him. You could run to him. You could love him. You could worship him. Your sins will be forgiven no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. His claim is, come, I will wash you white as snow. You could trust him. He's God saying, come to me. I love you. I want to forgive you. And number three, he is the unique son of God who is equal in one with the Father. And even though Israel and the kings of Israel Recall, sons of God, I will tell you, they failed miserably. Every one of them. But Jesus is the true and better son, who upon his subordination role was completely obedient and therefore was able to die an atoning death on the cross as forgiveness of your sins. He is the true and better son. And he invites us all to come to him, to worship him as the one true God, who forgives sins, who embraces sinners, who loves people. The Father sent the Son. The Son died on the cross. And we'll get into John 14 and 16. And the Holy Spirit was sent. One God, three roles. For your salvation, do you love the Son, that Son? Let's love and worship Him together as we continue. As we sing to Him. As we continue to worship Him. In truth, if you don't know the Son, here he is. Jesus, come. You are God. You died on the cross. You rose from the dead. I worship you. I'm tired of running my life. I'm tired of trying to do things on my own. I love you. I want to worship you as the one true God who died for me and rose again. That's this, Son. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your plan. Thank you so much, Father, for your love that you sent your only Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming in obedience to the Father. Fully God, fully man. So that you can die an atoning death for us. Being God, you forgive. Being God, you can and will give life. Being man, you can die man the one eternal son we thank you and father with all our heart we want to worship you one god father son and spirit